0: in addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts. Our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Dr. Eli Karam back with you. Have you ever read a book that has been so influential in your career that it changed the way you think about the populations you work with? Well, for me, almost two decades into my career, that book was I Don't Want to Talk About It, Overcoming the Secret Legacy of Male Depression by Terry Reel. It uh, gave me insight not only to the kind of what lays beneath the hardened exteriors of some of these difficult male clients we have in our practice, but how it impacts, you know, relationships, both with significant others and spouses and children. And that's a book 20 years, over 20 years after its release to me still holds the test of time. And it's one that I would give to any hard to engage male or male struggling with depression, but not realizing they're depressed, what Terry calls covert depression. So it is great honor to have Terry on the podcast today. Let me tell you about Terry Reel. He is the founder of the Relational Life Institute, also known as the RLI, and that offers workshops for couples, individuals, and parents around the country, along with a professional training program for clinicians wanting to learn the relational life therapy methodology. He's been a family therapist and a teacher for more than 30 years. In addition to, I don't want to talk about it, which put him on the map, He is the author of How Can I Get Through to You, Reconnecting Men and Women, and most recently, The New Rules of Marriage, What You Need to Make Love Work. He's a senior faculty member at the Family Institute of Cambridge in Massachusetts and a retired clinical fellow of the Meadows Institute in Arizona. Over his career, Terry's worked with thousands of individuals, couples, and therapists. His work has been recognized and uh, kind of promoted in national media outlets like Good Morning America, The Today Show, 2020, and even Oprah. Um, but more than anything else, Terry is an authentic, real guy. And in our pioneer interviews, is if you've been a listener to the podcast, you know we go to the story. We don't focus on techniques or theory. We go to the story behind the therapist and quite what a story terry has he'll take you back to his childhood and the kind of dysfunctional past that led him into helping profession uh, and ultimately into a cathartic experience with his father that led to the book i don't want to talk about it as always spread the word to anyone interested in relational therapies whether an mft or they're just wanting to learn more about couple or family therapy, AMFT Podcast, your one-stop shop. We will be back after our interview with Terry to tell you more. Okay, I'd like to welcome Terry Real to the AAMFT Podcast, and someone I've been looking forward to talking to for a long time, my favorite part of this show, as our listeners know, is talking to model developers. Not necessarily for the specific techniques or interventions, but to hear uh, the story behind the model, the self of therapist. And uh, my experience with you, Terry, is that you're uh, very forthcoming as far as your own life and what has led you down the path you have. So the first question I always have is what got you interested in couple and family therapy to start with your origin story so to speak
1: yeah well uh, it is uh, my origin story I, I i it's somewhat facetiously but not really as the kids say you know serious but not um i started at my family therapy career at about the age of four i think and i started managing my out-of-control parents And um, I had uh, a few things going for me constitutionally. They were just grace. I don't know where they came from. One is, I knew that they were crazy, and I didn't shame myself too much. I didn't blame myself back then anyway. I knew they were nuts, that's their line. And two is, I had a kind of spirituality. I spent a lot of time alone in the words or walking the streets and I felt uh, bathed in, uh, in something
0: spiritual, that, that helped. So four, like and you say crazy, that can mean a lot to a lot of different people. So even though you didn't know what a normal family looked like, you know yours wasn't. What uh, what specifically um, are your earliest memories of growing up in that family?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you uh, the day I knew that my mother was crazy. Yeah, I don't know if you were too young for this, but when I was a kid, we would, we would go all go out and collect dimes for the March of Dimes and Charity. And you had these little envelopes and you put you know, dozens and dozens of dimes in them. So uh, we all got our little envelopes and we were supposed to canvas the street, start with our parents, and we fill them with donations for this charity. And uh, when I asked my mother to go out with me, she looked at me uh, with her obese face with one eye that turned outward but she never physically corrected uh it, anyway and she said you tell your teacher that your mother said that charity begins at home and that was the end of it and then it became a deal when uh, everybody had collected them that one by one all of us it was really quite a, a primitive school but we stood up and announced how much we had collected
0: geographically where are we carry east coast right boston canada new jersey okay new jersey okay yeah. And uh, one by one, the kids got up and raised the thing, and I got
1: up. This must have been kindergarten or first grade. I got up and I said, my mother said to tell you that charity begins at home, I have nothing. And I watched the teacher and the other kids gasp. And I looked at them and I knew instantly that my mother was nuts and not to be trusted. So, that was one awakening.
0: And, you know, so it's it's interesting in the sense that we only have one, you know, when we think of relationships, you know, the one that we're in, and then our blueprint, our family of origin. So, you did not have a good blueprint. So, I I find that you my know, it's mother, interesting.
1: My yeah. mother was crazy and my father was wild.
0: Yes. Uh, and so, kind of what led you then to a profession like this where... Instead of psychopathologizing people, even though we don't ignore psychopathology if it's staring us in the face, we look for strength and health and relationships. So how did you go from a very dysfunctional family to wanting to create more functional ones?
1: Well, my father was an artist. He was a fine artist, and he was a failed artist.
0: Uh, He would um,
1: paint and sculpt in our garage. He was really a sculptor. He never made a go of it. And then, and my mother earned money as a nurse and kept us alive. My mother would scream at him that he had to get a job. They would fight. And eventually he would grudgingly go get a job. And it would be some harebrained outfit, as he called it, that would fire him or go under or be gobbled up by somebody that no longer, anyway, he'd be out of a job as often as anyone. And the pattern was, when he was out of a job, he'd be sort of desperate and somewhat hungry. And when he was in a job, he'd be surly and nasty. And, um... uh, I was supposed to redeem my failed father by being a writer. And I wrote a couple of novels when I was in high school and college. I was driving a cab, it was 1975, and I was writing novels. I had just bailed from a PhD program in comparative literature. I spent four years there. and I wrote two novels and a bunch of short stories, and I was driving a cab and I was getting shot at here in Boston. I'd moved to Boston. And I knew I needed a different job. It was mid 70s, and so the human potential movement was everything. I was living with a bunch of roommates, and they were all doing mental health things. So I got a job as a mental health worker on a loony bin. And that was it, man. I was like totally in love. The first role play. Yeah, exactly. The first role play that I did, but it's because I did such a fair tale. The first, you know, it's, it's a classic Alice Miller, the drama the Gift of the gifted child. and extraordinary. EQ because I needed it to survive um, so anyway I remember taking the chair it was project place where a volunteer place where you talk people down from bad acid trips and uh, we had we had some training and in the training you were a therapist for 10 minutes and I took the chair and I knew what to do better in that chair in 10 minutes and I knew in literature in four years I just knew what to do and I said wow this is it!" and I had to get into therapy to give up being a writer and take up being a,
0: a therapist when you were me. young did you have uh, siblings because you have two parents that were not uh, you know f- f- physically or emotionally there in the way you needed them and so you had a you know kind of figure out a lot of this on your own did you have close relationships with your siblings or were you really
1: I had. A, I have a fraternal twin brother and we
0: split. my parents pitted us against each other my
1: brother feels like he has a completely different childhood than the one I
0: had oh man we could have a whole different podcast on that I have a, a fraternal twin brother that couldn't be any more different than me with a similar story but uh, uh, yeah. that wow so uh, what was that like
1: uh, well, I, we just weren't resources for one another. We gave each other a wide berth, and weren't particularly nice to each other. Um, so he was no help. I I I grew by surrogates. I um I would be I would hang out in other people's homes, like a lot of kids from dysfunctional homes. I would find normal families and adopt them, or you know, get them to adopt me. And then as I grew, I became a really black belt mentee. I picked beautiful mentors, And I was very gratifying to work with. And you know, I'm smart, I would, I would and, and I'm, I'm assertive. So I would start giving back to my mentors uh, my take on what they were doing, or an analytic take on piano Melody, a family systems tape on um, the the stone center. Uh, So I could, uh, I could mix and match. And I grew by having these uh, mentors in my life.
0: it's, it's great. So you're, you, you start doing these role plays, and you figure out, hey, I can do this, then how do you say I want to do this professionally, I want to become a therapist?
1: I was, uh, being in the 70s, even though I was a mental health worker, which is glorified nurses, I I had tremendous responsibility, I stayed in this position for two years. By the end of it, I was leading group therapy, I was supervising in group therapy, I was uh, teaching family therapy, Um, I I was running community meetings, I mean, I had a lot of responsibility much more than a social worker nowadays. Um, so I learned uh, a lot, and I decided it was for me. I'd already spent, and this is the real story, this is the down and Bertie, I'd already spent four years in a PhD program. I wasn't going to go back to another goddamn PhD program. So I got my social work degree. It was quick and uh, thorough. I went to Smith. It was very simple dynamic which is good. I'm glad I got grounded in that. And, um, I'll tell you how I got into family therapy. I, um, I was at Smith College and my casework teacher was uh, very f- fond of me, uh, to me. Like, I, like I said, I'm a good 19. And, uh, my thesis, my MSW thesis was, um, um, it, uh, five, uh inter-subject- intrasubjective cycles and marital interaction and it was about inside, outside, inside, outside and that teacher Sally Ann Ross said to well, me, you know, you're like an analyst trying to invent family therapy, it's already been invented why don't you come to the Family Institute of Cambridge and study with us and I said, nah, I, I, was, I was heavy into it correct? and uh, uh, I was teaching classes in exquisite empathy, if you can believe that. But um, I said, no. And then she called me up in September, and she said, look, uh, uh, we just had a scholarship opened up. The guy turned us down last minute. You can come for free. It was like 4000 bucks or something. It was a year-long program. And I said, oh, okay, I'll take that. And I came, and I trained in, at the Cambridge Family Institute, and I fell in love with family. Oh, my God, it was like a third dimension. It's like i have only been operating in two dimensions. Suddenly, there in a third. There was, there was space. Uh, it was
0: extraordinary. People find family therapy, you know, they've always thought systemically, but they didn't have the language for it. They didn't know it. So this experience, kind of like you learn by doing, um, what, who were your earliest influences?
1: First, let me say what family therapy did. It twisted my head around. You know, Gregory Basin was mind-blowing. And I literally mean you start thinking in different ways. You see things as feedback loops. You start seeing things cybernetically. You start seeing things as components of a general system. And um, it, 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 it's willing uh, to be able to, you know, to I remember, that, and this is my classic example of switching from individual to family to system stigma, uh, an individual therapist faced with a truant kid will ask, what does the truancy mean? A family therapist will ask, who's he going home to take care of? That's a revolution, man. That's a revolution. So I, I was in love, and there were, those were very heady days. The family therapy, everybody was hot. The Mnuchin was hot. One of my great men. men Yeah, give us
0: a a year here where you're at uh, the Cambridge Institute.
1: Oh, my God. I'm learning structural family therapy, Mnuchin. I'm learning strategic therapy, although more of that in a minute. I'm learning narrative, constructivist therapy, Michael White.
0: So we're in the early 80s, Terry, here?
1: Yeah, we're in the 80s. We're in the 80s. Uh, Melantine, that's how I, my career got launched. I said to Sally Ann, after I graduated from uh, the Institute, uh, if you were an ambitious young family therapist, what would you do now? She said, there's this group coming out of Italy called the Melantine who's going to revolutionize therapy. And uh, there's only one place to learn it. That's in Calgary, this guy called Tom. He does an extern program for the summer. I- skedaddled up there, came back to Boston, the revolution of the Milan team hit, family therapy, like a tsunami, and I, I was one of three people in the northeast who knew how to teach it. So, that's how I became uh, a teacher in family therapy.
0: Wow. And those are those are some amazing people to learn from. The, the,
1: th- o- the other way of saying it, though, is I became a therapist, so... I say this and I don't want to talk about it, which as you know largely biographical. I um I became a, a therapist in order to gain the skills that I would need to get my father to tell me
0: his real story. Well, you're reading my mind, so I'm about twenty years into my career and I remember very early on somebody told me to read your book which you just mentioned, of which you know you've several great books, but uh, now it's no surprise to hear that you are a writer because the way you you write your vignettes about your clients and you talk about your own family of origin, your father, the the stories kind of come to life. So, yeah, I wondered where the origin of wanting to work, especially – with men's issues and this idea of what brought you to the national yeah, notoriety wow. as far as covert depression, which was really, I remember when I first heard that term and I, working with all these men that on the surface, uh, looked successful and happy and, and they were really, uh, suffering in this silent, uh, disparity and that, that word covert dis- d- depression. I mean, that, that was an eye opener for me. So talk about the origin into, into working with men.
1: Well, actually, you, you mentioned something, and thank you for your uh, lovely appreciation in my writing. I'm proud that I'm a good writer. But, you know, there aren't that many psychotherapists who are good writers, but I'm a novelist first. And a that therapist makes sense, second. yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm proud to say I write like a novelist, Those stories are like little playlists or, being, or short stories. But at, at any rate, leaving that aside, there's a funny story about how I wrote, I don't want to talk about it, which I bet your listeners would like to hear them. Sure would. Uh, Well, it was Olga Silverstein, the great family therapist from the Ackerman Family Institute, the protege of Peggy Papp. Olga has her own interesting story. She went to social work school in her 60s, 50s, I'm sorry, was an intern at at the Ackerman Family Institute. She was so uh, palpably brilliant that Peggy Papp said, come here, you come with me. And the two of them wrote The Process of Change. The Process of Change is, in many ways, an extrapolation of Olga Silverstein's work by Peggy Papp it's a, and their transcripts of it. Anyway, I was lucky enough to have Olga as a, as a mentor, and she helped me twice. Once she unblocked my writer's block for me, and I began to write again. And the second time, I met her at Smith, where we were both teaching at the social work school in the summer. And it was very than Welles, it was nighttime, and we met under these stone arches underneath a bridge. And there was a shadow <laughs> crossing her face. And she said to me, I'm going to change your life. And I said, oh, God, again, Olga? <laughs> and she said, no, seriously, I'm going to change your life. I said, okay, what? She said, you're going to write a book. She said, I just wrote a book on men and on boys and their mothers. And uh, my agent, who's very smart, looked around and saw that no one had written a book about men and depression. And you're going to write the book. She has a lot of famous people, but I said she should go to you. And, and I said to her, uh, well, uh, look, I'm a family therapist. I don't even believe in discrete diseases. Uh, what do I have to say about men? And, and why would I write a book about men and depression? And Oka said, "I got a three hundred thousand dollar advance," and I said, "I'll be right over." (laughs) That's a true story. That's great. And then I went down to New York to talk to this hotshot agent. And this is true. And I'm I'm like on the plane, wondering what the hell I'm doing, wasting my time. And I just for you know the kicks, I I whip out a napkin, and and I say to myself, "Look." I'm a relational therapist. I don't believe that much in these discrete I'm relational. If I were to talk about mental depression, it would be about the uh, the impoverishment of their lives without relational connection. And then the, the dawn broke. It's like okay, right about that. And I started to scribble some ideas on a napkin. I presented it to this agent. She said, "You're the guy." And uh, look, I have the napkin and. Several of the ideas that I want to talk about are on that napkin
0: This kind of so is that how you how did you co- coin covert depression
1: Covert was depression was yes. on that was on that napkin
0: Wow, so even though your family of origin, especially your father greatly influenced it was really the right time right place and and uh, it, it didn't start out as wanting to write on men in depression. What a, what a story. So, then how did it morph to being so much about your father?
1: Well, I had a vision of writing a book that would be about one third clinical vignette, one third exposition, and one third memoir. And if I, it's, it's interesting because what, what I said earlier, I had to go into therapy to give up being a writer. But what that was is I I had to tell the story of my own abuse as a child. I had to I had to, I had to bring it to the light. I had to uh, to make it public and and not the not the not closet it. And uh, I thought I would write an, uh, a novel that would be big, sort of like the I don't know if you know Patrick Miller, but sort of sort of like the Patrick Miller novels where. It is, it's just in
0: disguise well, I felt book. after reading after reading, I don't want to talk about it and uh, it's one of those ones that uh, you know, was that published in 1991, right? Early 90s? Yeah, so it, it certainly holds the test of time but I felt after reading it was like your personal I don't know if you had worked through all that stuff with your family of origin and your dad ahead of time but it, it seemed like a cathartic experience uh, by the end of reading uh,
1: Yeah, listen, and you know, people get, I mean, this is not whatever, but people give this book out of an intervention. Uh, you know, it opens up, it's very hard to get through that book and not be it, it brought to tears. Uh, it, it, it opens men up. There are, there are so many media stories on that, including my
0: own. You know, I think that is, and I think of... We have this kind of therapeutic technique and various models of disquisition, the idea that you can't see it in yourself, but you can read a story and you can see it in somebody else. And it does speak to your writing style and just how real those, pardon the pun, how real those vignettes are in the sense that uh, even, yes, people people that are hardened, yes. I mean, that—that that is what I believe why it stands the test of time. And uh, uh, speaking of an intervention, I've used that. The book is an intervention to, first of all, for partners that can't get their husbands or their spouses to come into therapy. But then they'll read that, and that'll soften them to their spouse, who's someone that doesn't look like a sympathetic character. And then uh, they somehow get that man to read that book. And that, I don't know how many couples therapies have been created by a venue like that. But I I do think that it resonated. And obviously, you have... You know, many, many books that, you know, we can talk about, including the new new rules of marriage and um, things that have morphed. But I I really feel that
1: uh, as far as your
0: resonance, that is the one. That's a question I have later, how you want to be remembered. But I I do feel that put you on the map. So what was that like uh, with you and dad? I do want to hear. I know what it was like when you were young and you couldn't wait to get out of there. And you basically healed healed from within. But what was that relationship like with dad? In, in,
1: in a fit of depression, going to depression, his father, my grandfather Abe, uh, tried to commit suicide and tried to murder uh, my father and his brother. And my father was 11 and his brother was 9. But he tried to gas him in a garage and a car. And my father remembers knowing instinctively that there was something very wrong and his father sort of cuddling him and putting his head down on his shoulder and saying go to sleep just go to sleep just go to sleep and he sought his way out of the car he broke the lasso his foot and got his brother out of the car and his father kind of woke up and stopped and what i say in the book which i believe is true is my poor father never really fully got out of that part. His life was a kind of contracted suicide. And he was very difficult to live with. He was loving, he was warm, he was violent, he would scrap me and not bothered enough to me, in ways that um, go way beyond what might be rationalized. With me. Uh, and um, uh, he was a brutal, loving loser, and I felt sorry for him most of my life, and I felt burdened by him. And one of the ways of describing why I got into therapy is I got into therapy and I was a free myself from him and his legacy. And um, I played out a lot of bad stuff when I was younger. And, of course, I got into therapy and then I was in therapist to heal myself, to get my relationship straight with myself. Freedomality was enormously helpful in um, a better relationship with myself.
0: Did you know that Tenio, the name of AMFT's online learning platform, means to understand in Latin? This system is designed to help you do just that. Tenio provides access to hours of online education related to various topics, always with a focus on systems and relational therapies. Tenio is a fantastic resource for MFTs and other mental health professionals seeking continuing education credits. And they are available on demand to be started, paused, and completed at your convenience. Go to aamft.org slash learning to start exploring topics like play therapy, affirmative care with transgender youth, introduction to trauma for MFTs, and so much more. Yeah, it's an amazing story. It's as, power, as powerful as you just described, you know, reading it in the book is equally powerful so that really was a springboard to you and uh, again something there's no way you could have known you could have had that healing and that catharsis when you started that process how did you how'd you get from that to what many people will know you from uh, currently is your relational life institute
1: yeah well I I went in the I learned individual therapy to heal myself. Then I got into family therapy to learn how to have a relationship. And if I hadn't gone, if I hadn't become a family therapist, I just would have screwed up relationship after relationship after relationship. I, I, in my younger day, I was very narcissistic and very young. He was kind of an asshole, and um, I think I think it. I think it, it, it uh, it, it impacted my career uh, at one point, but not a lot. But it, it wasn't good. And um, meanwhile, when I, I don't want to talk about it came out, the better part of me was chugging away, and people would call me and say, "Is there a therapist in Topeka or California, wherever, that does what you do?" And I would go to AMST or after. I mean fine wherever I could. After about two years, uh, the light dawned and I said, Look, if you want to, come to Boston. And what evolved was a two day intervention that was that big at the end of our two days, you're we either on track or divorcing. That was it. And I broke virtually every rule I'd learned in couple therapy during these interventions and they worked remarkably well. So being a teacher already, I'd say to ben, and uh i began to annotate what i was doing and that became the method called relational life
0: therapy yeah i've talked to um all of these model developers and it's interesting that many of them say they they learned their model they didn't they learned it by studying their clients and their clients taught them their model so it's basically what you're saying these marathon sessions these two-day intensives turned in um, to what became your training model for someone that's never done that long of a session talk about both the uh, I have so I know That's kind of like it's both exhaustion and exhilaration uh, kind of at the same time talk about uh, how that influenced you
1: I don't, this may sound obnoxious to people, but I I don't feel at all exhausted after five hours of FaceTime with a couple. Uh, Unless they're, you know, really heavy lifting, you know, they're monosyllabic, or or these coins seem to get from to talk, or they're really argumentative with you, or something like that. But mostly I feel pretty exhilarated, even if somebody's being difficult. Uh, RLT, relational life therapy, uh, which is known for producing deep, permanent change quickly. Character using the couple as leverage to redo uh, to, deep, individual work, even trauma work, in the context of the couple's therapy, and we produce transformative, characterological change, and we produce it quickly. We have a particular specialty in working with men and grandiosity. Uh, Everybody knows there are a million things to do with shame, but helping people come down from grandiosity has been a woefully lacking, uh, missing
0: all of it. One of the things I really find interesting in your work, too, you know, we think of narcissism, you know, kind of on a continuum, but there's not just... One in this profile of men, one generic type of narcissist. You know, you talk of about the three types of narcissists that I think is is very interesting to kind of understand and classify. You want to say a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, where would you get that? That's good. The, um, I talk about I, I use um, the old psychiatric classifications, uh, which you know are a bit out of favor these days. But too bad. You can be a narcissist proper. Uh, in which case you're a narcissist with a narcissistic style, you're just, you're charming, or you're, um, you're Trump. Uh, you can be a narcissist with an hysterical style, which is really charming, and warm, and seductive, and inclusive, like Bill Clinton. Uh, or you can be a narcissist with an obsessive-compulsive style. And, and these are uh often men who uh it's like if you love me you would have lined up the shoes properly because you know how important that is to me it's about rigidity and control and if you're entitled to you title, inflict this rigidity and
0: control on others a lot, a lot of continue. tell us uh as we go back and forth between uh tips and your story your favorite way In therapy either individual or couple to disarm a narcissist
1: well it's actually a complex process that we go into in detail in our training Um, the first business is to get leverage you have to uh, have an answer to the narcissist's question to himself and herself which is why should I put up with you and you better have a good reason And that means you have something in your back pocket that the narcissist wants, like a happier wife, or healthy kids, or a close relationship with his kid. And you stand between something he doesn't want, like a miserable marriage, or being booted out of the bedroom, or being left altogether, or doing damage to the kid. There's lots of different sources of leverage, and leverage exists a sort of hard-edged word for motivation. And how, are you going to you die? Well, how do you help a narcissist buy into therapy? And the first order of business is you make it very clear that you, what the road is going to look like if they persist in their dysfunctional behaviors. And you make it clear what health might look and feel like. I reach in past the adaptive channel part of the client. Ask the real good job part of the client to the sliver, the sliver of functional adult, the uh, prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the person, the adult. You are a decent person who behaved indecently for the last twenty years. Will you let me rescue the real you from this nonsense? Who's going to say no that? Right? So we work with grandiosity. we we're, we're, um, we're I don't like the word confrontational. The, the word I use, the phrase I use, is joining through the truth. And the operative word in that phrase is joining. Any fool can collaborate with clients with difficult truths. The art is telling our clients difficult truths, ways that they're self-defeating, ways that they're blowing their own feet off, but they're coming in to fix. We tell that to them. And we do it in a way that's so loving and so respectful yet so firm and clear, uh, that they feel closer to us and more trusting about us than before. That's journey through the church. And we're self-disclosing. All of us, not just me. It's a principle. We're not above you, we're not below you facilitating your process like Paul Rogers. We're, we're like 12-step sponsors. We're in the mud with you. I, I like to say, um, if you come you know, we, we lose tremendous power when we shield ourselves with that with, with screen of neutrality. That's good for transference work. But uh, RLT is not transference work, and most MLTs are not doing transference work. You don't need to be neutral. I, I, I say, I, I can't teach somebody how to be relational and not be relational with them while I'm teaching the to you. So we're humans. We talk about our fights with our kids and Sometimes our fights with our spouses, and,
0: and you
1: know, but it's very hopeful. It's and ed- it gives you tremendous credibility to say, "I've been there."
0: I agree, I, and I think something you know, we think that over time, and this podcast will be listened to by young professionals, therapists in training programs, therapists working on their license, and experienced professionals, and I think that. It's kind of sometimes a myth that you can only share your personal experience or only self-disclose if you have lots of years under your belt. I think anytime you can self-disclose and it normalizes or demystifies the therapy process uh, and it makes you human, uh, I think it helps. I also think that's related to vulnerability, which is also something I know um, as you've moved to your work with couples, you know, outside of in your work world, you know, especially the narcissist showing vulnerability, that's that's seen as weakness or uh, seen as a deficit. But in the context of a committed relationship, that is really what brings couples together. I guess I use that as an entree for you to talk about how you shifted to working with couples and what well, you write about in the new rules of marriage and yeah. real, where, where you really think – um, the field of couple therapy is headed and also just relationships in general uh, since you started. I mean, you've seen a lot in the course of your career, and mm-hmm. I'm cu- curious in what you think the evolution is.
1: Well, you know that for 40 years I've been writing about, arguing against, and fighting against patriarchy. And uh, I believe that RLT is a post patriarchal therapy. I believe that uh, the uh, traditional gender roles of men and women under patriarchy are inimical to intimacy. Patriarchy was not made for intimacy, it was made for production, consumption, and stability. Um, the demand, our, our new ambition to become lifelong lovers with each other, to graft lover-like relationships, onto the stability of marriage and longevity of historically brand new. And patriarchy isn't equipped for it. Look, when I talk about the traditional roles of men and women, I'm talking about a shutdown, uh, overtly uh, one-up, covertly uh, shame-based man. You know, I, I, I somewhat facetiously say uh, an outwardly driven, Inwardly shame-based man, coupled with an outwardly compliant, inwardly resentful woman. That's America's power couple. That's a successful couple. Uh, America rewards adaptive children. It doesn't like functional adults. Anyway, leading women into full loving voice is leading them beyond patriarchy. Leading men into open-hearted uh, connection and receptivity is leading them beyond patriarchy. And you're right about vulnerability. i just just been writing an article for the Psychotherapy Network where, as we speak, on working with difficult men. And one of the points I make is that traditional patriarchy is founded on two points. One is invulnerability. The more invulnerable you are, the more manly you are. And two is domination. In the world of men, you are one up or one down, Dominator, or dominate Listen, a lot of people say that men are afraid of intimacy. I don't believe that. Most men are afraid of being dominated. They don't know what real intimacy looks like. They don't know what Rianne Eisler calls power with instead of power over. In the world of men, you're one up or one down. There's no platform for intimacy. So leading men into vulnerability, for example... Leading them out of a dominion model to an ecological model, that is leading men and women beyond patriarchy and leading them into intimacy. And there's a whole art to how we do that. But one of the things I'm very proud of about RLT is we start, somebody looked at my work and commented and said, it was, uh, I was transforming patriarchy one couple at a time. And I love that description. And uh, as I lead men and women into increased intimacy, first with themselves, we work on self-esteem and a good relationship to yourself, and then with others. And um, it's moving men and women into what would now be called secure attachment, what I've been calling for 40 years, into relationality, into connection.
0: is, is a joy. Where do you see your work going now? Cause we, we, you know, I talked to model developers and we always ask them on the show. It's like, how do you want to be remembered? But it's very clear. You're as vital as you are now, as you were, uh, you know, when you were young and then when you wrote your first book. So where is the next, uh, part of your career going? Number one. And then number two, what do you want to be remembered for the most?
1: Let me answer the second one first. Um, You know what, I'd be happy with the simple epithet. Uh, Terry Real, a strong, loving man. That would do it. That's what I'm after. I would like to be remembered as the person who brought that paradigm into this conversation. I would like to be remembered for my fight against patriarchy and my fight for whole human beings. Women with loving voice and men with open hearts and connection. And here's something. I would like to be remembered for my books. I'll tell you a story, if you love the the these sort of behind the scenes stories. I'll tell you my favorite, favorite, very my Eye story about I don't want to talk about it. I get a lot of letters like this, but this one is of a different order. And a guy wrote to me told me he'd been a drunk for about 27 years. And he read, he read I don't want to talk about it and went to AA and sobered up and his life has been completely transformed. That's great. Here's better. He sends the book to his father, who's been broke for 45 years. And his father reads the book, goes to AA and gets sober. The two of them make amends, reconnect, and now they're best friends.
0: All that. Right. How powerful is that? Transgenerational intervention, uh, healing uh, individually, and a uh, father-son relationship. Yeah, I got to know, given what you told us at the beginning about your family of origin your own relationships your your wife your children what do you what do they think of your work because it's so deeply personal to you um some some model developers i talk to they just they don't know anything about their uh, father or uh family members work but but some people are are intimately tied to it so i am curious about your your family of procreation so to speak
1: Yeah, my kids have seen me teach, my kids have seen me do demo therapy sessions, Um, my kids have seen me lecture. They're they're, um, they're fond of uh, me, (laughs) they're fond of my work, they think it's righteous work, to be honest. And they're proud of me, I think they're very proud of me. They're very proud of me for being a self-made man, I know that. You're proud of me. You know, i I'm been upwardly be mobile in every dimension, not just financially and culturally and education, uh, but psychologically and spiritually and relationally. And if I may quote myself, and this is for I want to talk about it Family pathology rolls from generation to generation like a fire in the woods taking down everything in its path until one person in one generation has the courage to turn and face the flames. That person brings peace to his ancestors and spares the children with fire. It's not for us alone, this word. It's for, our, it's for the generation. And they know that Belinda and I uh, reverse the legacy that had been handed down to us
0: through generations of violence and so on. They know that. Kind of I'd like for you to talk about also now, you know, since you've written so much about couples, how your work with couples has impacted your own marriage, if you're comfortable talking about that. Sure. Um,
1: I, you know, I say to the people that I work with, uh, uh, look, Linda and I use the same skills uh, that we're downloading to you, and on days when either of us choose to indulge and uh, don't use these skills because we're just an adaptive child, part of us doesn't give a shit, um, then we look just as ugly like as you two. <laughs> Couples are very happy hearing that from their therapists They think they'd be alarmed but they like it. Um, but Linda and I live by this, we practice this, we process our relationship this way. You know, the great thing now after 35 years of marriage is uh, it, it, what I call having our wits about us. It, it's like nowadays if you start to wind, we have fights like everybody else. They're nice when I sleep on the couch, it, metaphorically, sometimes not so metaphorically, <laughs> but, um, uh, but they're very, very rare. And what happens usually is one of us gets exercised. And it, it, the other one gets defensive, and we escalate somehow. And after that, somebody calls for timeout, and we both retire somewhere for 15-20 minutes, and then one of the other will come back, kind of take time, and uh, and say something like, "Hey, uh, I don't really want to fight. You want to fight? I don't want to fight. But that's not a there? Who wants to fight? What do you mean?" And yeah, I say, well you know you really could apologize for blah 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 blah. you go, okay you're right, I'm sorry I shouldn't have said that. But you know you, you what I mean? Okay, I got it. Well you know, what's the reassurance. that so said blah 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 blah. Okay, I, I can do Okay, let's put let's that. And the reason why we sailed through what would have been a, a, a whole night of fighting is because we kept our eyes on the prize, which is a nice dinner. Having a nice time. That's what we're here for. And uh, we just didn't want to fuss with each other. That's what I call second consciousness. That's what I call remembering love. It's the spiritual part of our life.
0: Yeah, you've mentioned that several times right now, and, and uh, throughout our interview, I feel like sometimes in our, especially in our couple and family therapy training programs, the spiritual dimension is, is kind of taboo or not fully tapped into. I think it's a very, after listening to you, obviously, a... Uh, self-made, very deep guy, talk about uh, not only how spiritual dimension has impacted your own work, but your thoughts about incorporating that into more training of couple and family therapist.
1: Yes, I think spirituality is really the heart of it, because the heart of it is who we are. That's, that We are living mentors to our clients. It doesn't mean that we want a, a dependent, transference relationship, but it does mean that we are the functional loving adults. And um, while we, in some ways, we parent our clients, more important, we um, do trauma work in which they do parent themselves, and they do this work in front of their partner. It's very beautiful. I'll be showing that at the uh, at the conference. Uh, showing
0: some inner child work and couples therapy. And as we, we wrap up here, one of the things that I think in addition to these great books that are really well written with your novelist background and accessible with these vignettes that come to life, I think you, your materials are readily available online and and uh, your website. So I want to give you the chance to talk about what you're really excited about now at uh relational life institute and yeah. anything else you want to plug go ahead my friend
1: yeah no a lot of very exciting stuff going on um i just launched it's not too late to get into because they're recorded and you can listen at will over and over people listen to over and over again
0: just like this podcast
1: there you go uh i just launched a brand new course uh, on multi-generational trauma we, we're, just what we were talking about on healing uh, people by going up a generation, or even two or three. I'm going to show a tape of an Austrian couple that flew in to see me. And I stop and turn around four generations of trauma, war trauma, in one session, you'll see how I do that. Um, So the multi-generational trauma course is very exciting. It's an online course. I have incredible um, guests. Uh, Thomas Buber, the great German mystic who lives in Israel and does uh, incredible uh, trauma work with like a thousand people at a time, will be talking about spiritual healing. Uh, Jack Saul of, of Colombia and Istanbul will be talking about collective uh, social healing of trauma. Uh, Rabbi Tirsa Firestone will be talking about healing from the Holocaust, also collectively and uh, dick schwartz a uh, lone individualist who will be talking about legacy burdens and how he works with them from an ifs perspective and in fact he spends the interview working on me it's really actually uh
0: dick does ifs with you yes he does uh, right. i i will sign up for that dick schwartz is uh we share the same mentor in our careers of overlapped. He's been a, um, a good friend and mentor to me. He's been on the podcast, but uh, I would love to see that. There is a certain amount of vulnerability to do parts work, especially to do it. Uh, oh my God, I, I bet I, that was, was house that, house was, house was house that house. quite an experience?
1: Yeah, my whole story. My dad and my little child. And, well, and I'm the
0: now you had done uh, a lot of work on yourself. Were you able to tap into things uh, working yeah. with Dick that you had not ever tapped yeah. into. Yeah,
1: it, it, felt, it felt fresh. I'm not saying it's the first time I've been there. And contrary to what Dick might say, it's not going to be my last. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so let me go on. The, this Monday, uh, PESI, uh the people who are behind the Psychotherapy Networker are launching a masterclass with Terry Reel. It is a, a replay and dissect together. Uh, Rich Simon, who's brilliant, he's the editor of the Psychotherapy Network, and I dissect five different sessions with difficult men, soup to nuts, from beginning to end. It, uh, it's, it's several hours long, and it's, uh, it's incredible. The sessions, I think, are great, and the discussion is even
0: better. When you think of the origin of this field of MFT in the golden age of which you were brought up and in, in which you. You spoke about it's like sh- sh- the, the joy of showing your work uh, and really seeing it happen. And yeah, we need to know what we do works and uh, research is the best way I know to do that. But there is still something about the live live interview that is so powerful and 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 so important in the training of a future.
1: Therapists. So that's a brilliant way to learn. Uh, I've got another online community um, group. Uh, we, by the way, I've got about, uh, fi- not about, I have uh, 560 students in the multi-generational course so far tuning in. And I have a community group, two calls a, a month from me on a wide range of topics. Alcoholism, incest, uh, infidelity, uh, doing trauma work in a couple sessions confronting grandiosity, grandiose women anyway i take a topic and play with it and we do case uh, discussion uh that's a great way to tune uh, in and uh, in uh, about three or four weeks not long we're going to be opening up the level one training which is also online it's two days two day course online you can take it you
0: but you really removed the barriers and since uh you will come to wherever the therapist is. Technology is a wonderful thing. Uh, These advanced training institutes, uh, you know, a lot of times require travel and uh, a lot of resources, but you've kind of cut out the middleman. Do you find the experience online? You you can replicate what it's like to be face-to-face at a training? It's
1: amazing because I do the level two and three trainings. It's just the first one that's online. And uh, level two used to be, frankly, a lot of review. Uh, because I would just do it live and people would have it in their brains. But now people are taking notes and they're reviewing the things several times. they come into level two with a level of sophistication that I had to get used to and I had to pick up my game with level two and make it much more sophisticated because people work. The online work is is great. It's just a two- day course filmed uh, with exercises that you can do. And, It happened to be a spectacular two days, so I'm I'm very pleased with it.
0: Terry, I cannot thank you enough for sharing your story and uh, really I learned a lot and I thank you so much for being with us here on the AAMFT podcast. And so concludes another interview in the Pioneer Series on the AAMFT podcast. Thank you to Terry Real for that very honest behind-the-scenes look at your life and Everything that went into shaping you to become the leader in the field of couple therapy and working with men that you are today. TerryReal.com, as he mentioned, T-E-R-R-Y-R-E-A-L.com is the place to go for all things Relational Life Institute related. Again, the latest book is The New Rules of Marriage. But as you heard, his background kind of as a novelist certainly comes through in his writing style and very engaging uh, vignettes that he uses to make the concepts come alive. We appreciate you listening to the AAMFT podcast. Please drop us a line. easiest way to reach us is at communications at aamft.org follow the conversation on Twitter. My handle is at Dr. Eli Live. The AMFTs is simply at the AAMFT. We'd love to hear from you. Not only your comments on the podcast, but suggestions of future content areas and leaders in the field, both established and emerging, that you want to hear from. You can also drop me a line at info at elikaram.com. That's I-N-F-O at dot mcom Please, wherever you find your favorite podcast, like, subscribe. My favorite is Apple Podcast, and leave a review. That really helps as far as us gaining visibility and credibility in the mental health podcast world. Until next time, my friends, stay systemic.